Welcome to this Frequency Matters podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Duncan Stewart, Director of Research at Deloitte TMT, about their 2023 predictions, which we recently published as part of our Swami predictions this year. Welcome. Hi, Pat. Great to be on the show. So Deloitte has released some very interesting projections and trends in various markets. So I wanted to talk with you about the ones related to high frequency and power conversion markets for our audience. Let's talk about the semiconductor market first. What trends are you seeing in the area of semiconductor design? Two big trends. Um, one is uh, fairly obviously the use of new materials. Uh, we'll cover that in a minute, but the probably more interesting trend that we are seeing is in the use of artificial intelligence, advanced artificial intelligence tools for designing chips. I'm sure that many of the people listening to this podcast are familiar that um, when you build a chip with 10 billion transistors on it, somebody has to lay it out. You actually need to optimize the chip design for PPA, that's power performance and area, you know, trading off, you know, how small can I make it? Uh, you know, what what kind of uh, speeds can I achieve? What kind of processing uh, can I do? And and that process up until very, very recently was entirely human. Now, there were design tools to, you know, do the layout, but in terms of actually doing the where does this module go and where does that block of transistors go, that was largely a human process that was slow and iterative and, uh, to be honest, uh, painful. There are a new bunch of AI tools out there, both from the leading tools manufacturers, as well as in-house uh, programs from some of the large chip uh, makers and chip designers. And those tools uh, uh, using AI, machine learning, actually allow people to uh, make chips uh, faster, cheaper, uh, with better PPA characteristics. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of effects as transistors get closer and closer and geometries become smaller. There's so many electronic effects that you can't really take all into consideration without that kind of software. Uh, what growth rates do you expect for these design tools? Well, so when we take a look at the overall semi industry, and, and this is using the growth forecasts from, you know, SIA and semi and the usual, uh, usual uh, WSTS, the usual gang of uh, forecasters, you know, we're kind of looking for the next year of semiconductor growth being flat. Maybe uh, I haven't seen the new forecasts. Well, rather, they're not out yet. Wouldn't surprise me if semi sales were actually down in 2023, given what we're seeing with interest rates and markets and, and dropping lead times and canceled orders and pushbacks. So, you know, given the industry's growing kind of basically 0% at best, we are expecting double digit 20% plus growth rates for these AI tools. Uh, it's a it's a large market in terms of the chips that are designed with them. The actual market for the tools itself is a few hundred million dollars. But we believe chips in 2023 that are designed using these new AI tools will be worth billions or even tens of billions of dollars. Wow, that's an unexpectedly high growth rate. So Deloitte predicts that compound semiconductors will replace silicon in many markets. Can you tell us which markets and why that will happen? Well, I'm kind of excited to be on this podcast, Pat, because normally when I talk about this, I can't use phrases like ultra wide band gap without losing 98.4% of the, I'm actually on a podcast where somebody may know what I'm talking about. So as everybody here knows, silicon is an absolutely awesome material at one and a half volts. It's got a nice narrow band gap so I can make the little transistors move from zero to one and back again very easily with very low power. That 
benefit, that narrow band gap is a positive problem when it comes to higher voltages. Uh, when you get into the 200, 400, uh, 800 volt applications, all of a sudden uh, there are silicon technologies that work in that area, but it's really not ideal. We're really interested in what's going on with gallium nitride or GAN and silicon carbide uh, for a variety of markets. Now you asked which markets. So number one, electric vehicles. Uh, silicon carbide, uh, about two thirds of uh, silicon carbide sales uh, in 2023 is expected to be for electric vehicles. Uh, and then the other one that's kind of interesting is in the chargers. That's where gallium nitride uh, shines. But in all honesty, it's also renewable energy. But one of the really big ones, Pat, is defense and aerospace. These technologies, these ultra wide band gap semiconductor materials are really critical. So when we take a look at the EU or the United United States looking at localizing, at onshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, uh, reshoring uh, semiconductor manufacturing capacity. A lot of people are paying attention to these compound semiconductors as key strategic materials. In good news, actually more than half of the plants making compound semiconductors are in fact already in North America and Europe. Uh, this isn't a situation like we're seeing with three to five nanometer, where all of it's in just two countries in Asia. So turning to broadband satellites, there are many companies working on LEO constellations. How many satellites does Deloitte see being deployed over the next few years and how many of these companies will survive? Because there are a lot of them. There are a lot, and I'm going to split that question into two, uh, and, and you'll understand why in a second. So first one, how many satellites? Well, there's the official number in our prediction, which we published in December, but had done the research for in the fall, and that number was about forty to 50,000 satellites by 20 to 30. And our number is wrong. And how do I know that? Because the FCC, shortly before we actually published, uh, came out with their new space division and said they had applications for 63,000 satellites. 63,000. Holy wow. cow, Pat. That's a, that, that's a lot of, of satellites, right? Uh, how many constellations is that? Seven to eight. Now, this is where I want to answer your question about how many satellites does Deloitte see being deployed and how many companies? It's not going to just be companies. Yes, there are private companies. Uh, names out there like Starlink, like Amazon's Kuiper, like OneWeb. But let's take a look at OneWeb. They actually have a big investment from the British government, right? And then when you look at some of the other applications that we are seeing there around the world, fairly certainly the Chinese are going to want to, and I don't mean a Chinese company, I mean the, the government of China is almost certainly going to build their own Leosat constellation. Russia is highly likely to build their own Leosat constellation. The EU, almost certain to build their own. There have been noises from Japan as well. So when you look at it that way, some of the constellations that are going to be up there are going to be up there to try to make money. And that's going to be an interesting thing to see. Uh, as the founder of one of the Leosat constellations said, um, our goal is not to be the first company to put satellites in orbit and provide data. Our, our goal is to be the first one to do it without going bankrupt. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, the, the barriers are well known and ain't nobody yeah. out there going to be surprised if, if we see consolidation in this space. But I think the really important thing to focus on here is that a number of these are actually military, strategic, geopolitical people. Uh, people are watching. Uh, it is estimated that of the uh, approximately 1 million people uh, using Starlink right now, it is estimated, and this is not a Deloitte number. This is a thing that I have seen out there, and I am not 
saying it's true. I'm not saying it's untrue. But there's an estimate that 130,000 people in Ukraine are using uh, uh, low Earth orbit satellite terminals right now. Now, it wouldn't be 130,000 terminals, but fairly obviously, their use in what is effectively a theater of war is something that is drawing attention to the geopolitical strategic necessity of having your own Leosat, because you can't rely on somebody else in uh, in a conflict, of course. Yeah, that's very interesting. I didn't even think of that part of it. What kind of speed and coverage will these constellations enable? Well, it's a, it's a lot like, you know, uh, what's the customer service like in a mall when you're the only customer there versus on Christmas Eve when 50,000 of your closest friends are there? We really know that these low Earth orbit uh, satellites are more than capable of providing 150, 250, 350 down and 50-ish up as long as you are the only person in that cell. The, the problem is each of the spots that these low Earth orbit satellites is painting on the surface of the Earth is on the order of about uh, 500 to 600 square kilometers, uh, which is what, three to three to 400 uh, square miles. So if you have more than one person per square mile, you saturate that spot fairly quickly. So it's the number of simultaneous users that's the really interesting thing. There have been some reports out there taking a look at crowdsourcing all the various people using low Earth orbit data satellite services, and speeds have been dropping month over month. As, as more people sign up, speeds drop. So uh, it will be interesting to see what kind of speeds we see. Coverage is fine. Coverage is not the issue. They cover the planet. But the problem is, yes, you can get coverage, but at what speed? And, and of course, upload speeds suffer as well. Uh, we are seeing absolutely speed. Uh, in areas when there are too many simultaneous users, speeds dropping well under 20 megabits per second up. Uh, download speeds, of course, tend to be a little higher, but even some of those are dropping under 50. Once again, depending on how many people there are inside that uh, spot. And so with all these uh, satellites in orbit, in addition to the stuff that's already there, will there be a crowded orbital environment that raises the risk of collisions? Yeah, think. Absolutely. You can't put 63,000 uh, birds in low Earth orbit without the risk of them bumping into each other. We have already seen the number of near collisions. That's uh, that's within a kilometer or so go up. We have already had uh, satellites in low Earth orbit need to expel scarce and valuable propellant to maneuver so to avoid collisions. Uh, why does all this matter right now? Not just satellites, 5,000 sats and about another 25,000 pieces of debris. However, there's another 100,000 plus pieces of debris and relative velocities are 40 to 50 miles per second in low Earth orbit if, if you are passing in the wrong direction. Um, there are no rules of the road. We don't know where everything is. Back in 2007, the Chinese blew up a satellite as a test, and that released about 2,000 fragments into low Earth orbit. And then in, Indi in uh, 2009, there was an Indian satellite in a collision um, that released another 2,000. Uh, every time one of these happens, that orbital low Earth orbit sphere uh, around the Earth becomes filled with more and more debris. And there is a risk, of course, of a runaway cascade where uh, one piece of debris hits a satellite, creating thousands of more pieces. That's called Kessler syndrome. And that is something we do not want. It could make low Earth orbit unusable for months or even years. 
Will commercial space situational awareness become a growing market then? Oh yeah, we're estimating it as a multi-billion dollar market by the 2030s. Um, there's also markets for debris removal and in-orbit servicing. One of the things is that these satellites in low Earth orbit need propellant in order to maintain altitude as well as to avoid collisions. If they're spending all of their time dodging debris, they're going to run out of propellant much, much sooner than five to six year lifetime. So refueling them after a year or two may become an interesting, novel and lucrative market. So all those sci-fi movies I see about the garbage collectors in space picking up uh, garbage and satellites might come true. Uh, you'd be amazed. Uh, the I'm a, I'm a science fiction fan going back to the, the 60s and 70s. Uh, an awful lot of stuff that they write about in science fiction ends up being true. So it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. So are there any other overall trends or predictions that I missed? Uh, one quick one. Uh, I'm, I'm the semi guy at Deloitte. So uh, I wrote another one that actually touches on uh, both compound as well as uh, the satellites. By and large, space is a harsh environment, especially at higher orbits than low Earth orbit. There's a lot of radiation there. And that radiation can flip uh, flip chips or it can burn them out over time, uh, degrading them. This means that historically, chips in space have been roughly as powerful as a 1970s pocket calculator. Okay, I joke slightly, but, but seriously, the processors that are in higher orbits really, really uh, fairly low powered compared to state of the art uh, devices down here on Earth. We see a growth in radiation hardened, uh, rad hard semiconductors. It's about a one and a half billion dollar a year market. And that those rad hard chips uh, have the potential of transforming uh, satellites in orbit from effectively dumb terminals. Right now, they've got good radios and good cameras or sensors, but not a lot of processors. Uh, the growth in rad hard processors could really transform them into much more intelligent devices, basically edge computing on the high frontier. Wow, that's very interesting. Thank you so much, Duncan, for talking with me today about the 2023 predictions from Deloitte TMT. Maybe we can have you back at the end of the year and see how many of these came true. To our audience, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.